I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the Gospel of John chapter 4. As we um, said last week, we're, we're, we're going to drop anchor here in these five verses, John 4, 20 to 24, for a little while, for a few weeks. Um, and uh, we're doing that in order to gain some clarity and conviction regarding a topic that, um, well, it's, it's very important to us, and that's the topic of worship. Last week, we sought to answer the question, why is God the Father seeking to make worshipers? And we're going to answer another question today, and that is the question, how? How is the Father seeking to make worshipers? Before we dive in, let me just tell you a little story um, about my own experience in the last week. It was, um, it was last Saturday night, so a week ago last night, I lay down to sleep in a fog of discouragement without going into all the, the detail that's not important for you. Uh, there, there were just a number of matters uh, that were on my mind, had been on my mind, uh, that were unresolved matters. And in my thinking, um, they were essentially unresolved on account of limitations in me, located in me. And so um, I fell asleep, and uh, I woke up after an hour or so, Maybe this has happened to you at different times. I, I woke up with troubled thoughts. And the troubled thoughts, uh, which were related to my perceived personal limitations, gave way to more than thoughts. They gave way to the feeling of hopelessness. And um, feelings of hopelessness, we've talked about this, we have categories for this. Feelings of hopelessness, feelings of discouragement, feelings of anxiety, on and on and on and on. These are manifestations of soul thirst, right? And my soul was thirsting. I was experiencing emptiness, need. And in that moment, I had a choice to make. Would I recognize my soul thirst as what we mentioned last week, as a call to worship and turn to the soul thirst quenching person of Christ and his promises? Or would I turn to what Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 describes as broken cisterns that can hold no water. For me, uh, so-called broken cisterns can be, in times like that, going, going to places in my memory of better times, joyful times. Reliving in my mind past experiences of sweetness can kind of go to my happy place and calm down and go to sleep. Or the broken cisterns 
might also be turning to imaginary places of what life might be like or might have been like if I was somewhere else doing something else or was someone else. Okay, so now you know how weird I am. I, my, I always say, you know, everybody's normal till you get to know them, so now you know that I'm not any different probably than you are. That was my temptation in the middle of the night. But by God's grace, I fought and resisted the temptation. And I turned to Jesus and asked for help. And I called to my mind uh, some of my go-to promises, promises such as Psalm 34, verse 10, that says, those who seek the Lord, and I was seeking the Lord, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Supply all that you need according to the strength of my righteous right hand. And I recited in my mind Psalm 1. I committed, it's a psalm I've committed to memory, and I'm, I'm praying, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord day and night, meditating on it. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, uh, bears fruit in its season, leaf doesn't wither, and everything he does, he prospers. I recited in my mind John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I've committed it to memory, and I prayed especially verse 5. Oh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I finally fell asleep again, probably 2 or 2.30 in the morning. But um, I was still, um, I was still affected by that last Sunday morning when we began to worship and uh, but we, we began to sing the truth of the gospel and as I opened the word and I preached and as I observed the active presence and power of God manifest among you, working itself out through you, um, and I experienced the life of God through the, just the, the remarkable care and hospitality of our missional community as we, we served and leaned into the stories of, of a bunch of college students that hosted for lunch. My soul thirst was quenched and satisfied in the manifest beauty and fullness of God. And then Monday morning, last Monday morning, during my time alone with Jesus, the psalm of the day was Psalm 40, and I contemplated it and prayed it. And this is what Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3 says. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up 
from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And then this verse, which so powerfully relates to what we thought about last week. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. He did it. He made worship happen. And then this great promise, many, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Who who drew me up out of the pit of my troubling thoughts? The Lord did. Who pulled me out of the the miry bog of my hopelessness and discouragement? The Lord did. Who placed my feet once again on stable ground? The Lord did. Who quenched my soul thirst? And we're not talking imaginary. We're talking about real, actual, symptomatic soul thirst. Who quenched that with real Actual, not imaginary, satisfaction and turned my soul thirst into worship. The Lord did. Who put songs of praise in my mouth to God? Who made me see, see glory? Who made me feel wonder, awe, reverence? Who turned that, generated that into trust in my heart? Who made the worship happen? The Lord did. And what's more, many will see. Many will see the glory of the Lord in the person and promises of Christ. And loved ones, seeing is worshiping. When we see, then we feel awe and wonder. And because of the wonder and awe and joy that we feel, we turn and we trust in the Lord to satisfy our soul thirst. Many will become true worshipers. God is making many to become true worshipers. And so, the best thing in all the world for anyone experiencing soul thirst is to become a true worshiper. And the best news in all the world, is that God the Father is all in. He is fully committed to asserting all that He is to making you such. End of the story. Long introduction. Well, I'm not done with the introduction. Um, I find it remarkable that the most profound, the most succinct, the most clarifying teaching on worship in the entire New Testament comes up seemingly by accident. Having her soul thirst exposed, the Samaritan woman changes the subject. And she lands on this topic of worship. But here's the deal. It's not an accident. 
seems like an accident. It's not. The sovereign God had providentially been moving Jesus and his disciples through Samaria. The sovereign God had providentially moved them to stop at that particular well, at that particular time of the day. The sovereign God then moved the disciples to leave Jesus alone by himself at the well. The sovereign God then moved this particular woman at that particular moment to come to that particular well. And then the sovereign God stirred Jesus to begin talking with her about how living water could satisfy her soul thirst. And then the sovereign God also even allowed this woman to try to change the subject off from her vain attempts at quenching her soul thirst through men. And the sovereign God did all that so that this woman and all of us could receive this most fundamental focused teaching concerning worship. That's why we felt like maybe the Lord would have us just stop here for a while. If true worship is going to happen, God the Father is the one who will make it happen. Doesn't mean we're passive. (laughs) Doesn't mean we're not engaged. But That should grab us. If true worship is going to happen, God the Father is the one who will ultimately and decisively make it happen. You see, He's not merely seeking and hoping that He might find true worshipers. Rather, God is seeking to make and create true worshipers. True worship is so important to the Father, so right to the Father that He is making worshipers all over the world. And so then the question for today is how? How is the Father making true worshipers? So let's now, (laughs) after that long introduction, look again at John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. This, this, loved ones, is, this is God's holy and precious, life-giving, sufficient, authoritative word. And so we read it like we read no other book. Follow along. The woman said to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit 
And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. We'd ask, O oh Lord, that uh, you might vindicate this very word that you have spoken. Vindicate it by making it true among us. Namely, would you create worship, the kind of worship that you seek? Our natures are such that, um, you know, we want to be pleasing to you, but there is a very strong gravitational pull in our hearts for the kind of worship that we seek, the kind of worship that would be pleasing to us, or the kind of worship that we feel like maybe others would seek that would be pleasing to them. There, there are times when we would choose to limit ourselves because of what we think might be pleasing to others. The fear of man would govern us. We're asking that the fear of the Lord would govern us. Reverence for the Lord would govern us. Wonder of the Lord would govern our worship and that wonder would be so powerful because of what we have seen of you. So we ask again, pour out your Holy Spirit so that we would see, bring illumination, so that we would behold, open our eyes, open our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the question then is, um, how, how could you tell if God has made you into a worshiper? Not all worship is true worship. And therefore, not every worshiper is a true worshiper. We, we understand that because the Samaritans were involved in worship, but it was not true worship. And so just because you're involved in worship doesn't make it true worship. So really, the, the main question is, what is, what is true worship? Um, according to Jesus, uh, there are just two, <laughs> just two necessary ingredients. Look again at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father, here they are, in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now we're going we're gonna to dive a lot deeper into those two necessary ingredients for true worship over the, the course of the next two Sundays after today. But, but for right now, we'll just take a dip uh, and consider briefly what it means to worship, first of all, in truth. 
worshiping the Father in truth. What does that mean? And, and really key for understanding this and clarification is Jesus' comment in verse 22 when he says to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, and here's the key phrase, for salvation is from the Jews. What does that mean? What it means is, is that through one special people, one God-chosen people, that is the Jews, God is going to communicate salvation. And the result of God communicating salvation through the Jews, the result of that is is the Old Testament. The record, the Old Testament is the record of God creating the world and God calling Abraham and God instituting a sacrificial system for the atonement of sin. All of these things which point to a promised and coming Messiah fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Samaritans, listen, the Samaritans, they could have looked at the Old Testament and seen that. They could have looked at the Old Testament and understood that. And accepted the claim of that truth on their lives and of their worship. But they did not. They would have none of it. The Samaritans did not own up to God as he had communicated himself in the Old Testament. And instead, the Samaritans had generated, they generated their own version of the Old Testament. What they did was they they took the Old Testament, deleted everything except the first five books, the Pentateuch, what it's called, and and then they rewrote those first five books to fit their own preferred vision of what what God was like. And, and, And this book we understand today as known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. So they, in effect, had um had recreated God in their own interest to fit their own fancy. And this is why Jesus says, you worship, but you worship what you don't know. The Samaritans had intentionally turned away from the truth that God had revealed about himself. And so for worship to be in truth means it must be focused on God as he has revealed himself in the Holy Scripture. So we worship in truth by taking this book and focusing our attention and our affection on God as He is revealed in this book. Now it ought not to come as a surprise that people today still worship, worship God in a way that is not in truth. People are still selective in their views of God, selective in their response to God. How does that happen? In what 
ways do people worship today in a manner that's not in accordance with the truth about God as revealed in the Bible? I've prayed that I might be very gentle now because, um, as I mentioned last week, and in accordance with the Babylon Bee, I am a veteran of the worship wars, and um, you know, my dad was a veteran and, um, of World War II, and he, he never wanted to talk about World War II, but when he did, he talked about it with a lot of edge and sarcasm. It was hard. That's what veterans typically are like. So if I come across as being a little edgy and a little, I, I don't mean to be, I mean to be gentle, but honest and truthful. So here we go. One way that we're tempted to worship in a manner that is not in truth is, is by deciding what we like God to be like and then essentially denying anything else that does not conform to that. We worship God in accordance with our own image of Him or our own preferred image of Him. And so there are some for whom God is only exclusively high and holy and transcendent. And because God is only and exclusively high and holy and transcendent, therefore the only acceptable way to approach Him is with this heavy, groveling, worm-like, morbid, introspective disposition. And and, and the gravest danger then is, is offering this strange fire of casual, irreverent worship. And so it's uptight. No one is worthy enough to enter God's presence with a a, a smile or a note of gladness. On the other hand, there are folks for whom God is only and exclusively imminent. He's near and He's close and He holds us, heals us, and He's our little buddy and um, cuddles with us and pets our hair and accepts us unconditionally and says, there, there. And if that's all He is, we're missing it. The truth about who God has revealed Himself to be. And it, and it leads to other troubling ripple effects. For example, here's another way that we worship in a way that's not in truth, and that's when we accept the Bible, but not its claims. So, for some, the Bible's, this is a good book, it's okay, it's an interesting book. Um, Just don't submit to it. Or we submit to the parts that we like, delete the parts we don't like, kind of like the Samaritans, right? Has no functional authority. And so, even though they may worship, they they still remain hardened in their hearts toward people that they don't like. Even though they worship, they they sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Even though they worship, they manipulate and control and rage. Even though they worship, they're like Samaritans, 
functionally editing out all the parts that they find inconvenient or objectionable. That would be worshiping not in truth. Or, for others, their entire experience of worship is on the focus of being together. Just not on God. So there become entire movements where worship is just mainly about being with our friends. The people are cool and the band is hip and that's where everybody's going. Then worship is the place to be. That's about all it is. It's just the place to be. But that's not worship in truth. Another example would be making the entire exclusive focus on style and or structure rather than on the truth of God. Oh, it's all about the music. Or it's all about the vibe. Or it's all about the atmosphere. All about one's personal preferences. Man, personal preferences are real, are they not? I mean, we all have them. We all know what we like and what we don't like. But for Jesus, is it? Is it not remarkable that for Jesus, when he's talking about summarizing the heart of worship, he doesn't say a word about lighting or location or liturgical structure or the leader's age or the instrumentation or the musical genre or the brand? These t- when those things take precedence over truth about God as he's revealed in this book, when it comes to discerning the kind of worship that God is seeking to make, those things have nothing to do with it. Worshiping in truth is focusing on God as He has revealed Himself in this book. The other necessary ingredient of true worship is Worshiping the Father in spirit. Now, like I said, we're going we're gonna to do, do a deep dive into both of these over the next couple weeks. So just bear with me here. I'm kind of <laughs> skimming the surface. But, but for the, the Samaritan woman, worship has to do mainly with a particular location. It involves going to where God is. You see this in verse 20. When she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So for her, in order to be able to worship, one must go to a particular place to meet God. And Jesus explains that, hey, look, God is spirit. That means God is everywhere. And that means that you can meet Him anywhere. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father In verse 24, he says, God is spirit. 
in John's writings, the Apostle John's writings, the phrase, in spirit, always has one of two meanings. It, it, it means one of two things. In spirit is either, first of all, a, a reference to the Holy Spirit, or, secondly, it is a reference to the desires of one's heart. And most of the time, in John's writings, those two things, are, they go together. And that makes sense because the only way into heartfelt desire for God is through the work of the Spirit of God. So, location is nothing. Heartfelt desire for God generated by the Spirit of God is everything. There are some really, really lovely worship spaces here in Sioux Falls. Uh, it seems like Lutherans have a real corner on the market when it comes to really, really nice worship space. I, I mean, I just was recently just over at Reconciliation Chapel at Augustine, and man, what a nice room. I'm thinking, well, this is so, the architecture and the decor, I mean, this all contributes to this worshipful ethos. But you can be in that wonderful space without heartfelt desire for God. It doesn't matter how beautiful the space is. It is not true worship. And on the other hand, I don't know what I was thinking about this on a day like today for, but you know, you could be sitting out on a tractor in a dusty, wind-blown day, spreading manure on a field, and, and even though your throat is dry and the air stinks, if your heart is filled with genuine longing and desire for the Lord, you can have true worship out there in the manure pile. Genuine heartfelt desire directed toward God is the second necessary ingredient for true worship. That's, that's what it means to worship in spirit. So he, here's a significant question then for us to raise. How do you tell, uh, how can you tell if you are a true worshiper? Simple answer is you worship in spirit and truth. There's genuine heartfelt longing and desire for God focused on God as He has communicated Himself through in and through this book. W worship is not true just because you're in a specific building, church building. It's not true just because you're with all the people that you like to hang out with. It's not true just because you happen to like that particular style of music. It's not true because the band is so awesome. It, it's not true simply because your emotions have been touched and tears are running down your face. Or it's not true just because you feel such conviction and you're so challenged. The kind of worship the Father is seeking to make, to create, to generate, is worship that is in spirit 
and truth. Both together. Now, why, why, why is being a true worshiper so, so important? So, Jesus is seeking to make this soul-thirsty woman of Samaria into a true worshiper, is he not? That's what he's he's doing here. He's trying to make this soul-thirsty woman into a true worshiper. But what else is he doing? Probably more fundamentally, Jesus is seeking to bring this Samaritan woman to salvation. She has not been saved. And the way you become a true worshiper is by being saved. These these things are one and the same. And that means that you know you are saved when you become a true worshiper. And that, my friends, makes this whole matter of true worship a profoundly weighty matter. Being a true worshiper is quite literally a matter of life and death. I'd like you to turn for just a moment to Philippians chapter 3. It wasn't that many months ago when we were making our way through this letter to the Philippians. And so perhaps you remember this text. But, but there were people in the, um, the church in Philippi that were teaching that unless you had been circumcised, you were not really saved. Only circumcised people are really saved. And that teaching was undermining the gospel, as you can imagine, and it was, as you can also imagine, destroying the church. Um, I mean, it's like people saying today, you know, you're not really saved unless you, unless you belong to such and such a church, or you're not really saved unless you use such and such a translation of the Bible, or it's like people saying you're not really saved unless you, unless you worship in a pure way, no instruments. Or you're not really saved unless, you know, you you just drive yourself to utter despair with morbid introspection and just grovel around. That's the only way that you can really know you're you're saved. Or any other addition to repentance for sin and faith in Christ alone for that matter. But in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul, he, he says, no, 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 no. No, truly saved people. Follow along. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision. Look out for those people who tell you, you're not saved unless you're circumcised. 
because the truly saved people, here it is, they worship by the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the, the way you know whether or not you're saved is not that you've been circumcised. The way you know whether or not you've been saved is that you worship in spirit and truth. Oh man, this, this makes worship, it makes true worship of, of such utmost importance. What happens here in this hour, how we engage in what happens in this gathering together, it is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Have you ever thought about the connection between being saved and being a true worshiper before? I think that there are some who have this notion that, you know, there's all these saved people, and then of all the saved people, then there's this smaller subset of people called true worshipers. And that is not what Paul is saying. He's saying that the people know that they are saved because they're true worshipers. So, now I'm finally going to get to the main question of the day. <laughs> How does being saved make us into true worshipers? How does this work? And with the Apostle Paul again as our guide, I want you to turn one more time, this time to Romans chapter 1. Well, that's not true. I'm going to ask you to turn to one other place. But, but for now, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, for his invisible attributes, this is God now he's referring to, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, or therefore, they are without excuse. So every, every last one of us has enough knowledge about God just by looking out there at creation, looking at the size of the universe, looking at the number of stars in the sky, looking at the, the wonder of the weather and the changing seasons and the wisdom of how everything holds together perfectly, precisely. How, how do you look at the intricacies of nature and humankind and, and not come to the conclusion that, that God is and that God is not just, he, he not only is, but he's like awesome, and he's powerful, and, and he's this gracious giver of all of that for us and for our enjoyment. How can people be so dead to that, blind to that, unresponsive to that reality? Answer, verse 21. For, or because... Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, respond in any heartfelt way to Him. But they became futile in their thinking 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so, so even though every last one of us knows enough, has seen enough of God to like honor him appropriately and respond to him with gratitude and thanksgiving, like acknowledge the fact that he is God, we just won't have any of that. We just, nothing. And that's because the moment that we refused to own up to what we do know, what we do see, refusing to honor Him, refusing to respond to Him in an appropriate way by thanking Him, when we, the moment that happens, something changes in here and in here. And what changed was our will was damaged so that now, by nature, we're unwilling. We, we are unwilling to worship God the way He would be worshipped. Our thinking became damaged so that now, by nature, we, are, we get confused. We, we become, we're spiritually blind. We get tangled up in our thoughts and our whole perspective on everything. Our hearts were damaged so that now, by nature, uh, we're just uninterested. <laughs> we're just, God, oh, blase. Well, you know, who, wow. Um, it, we're just passive toward it. And so, if and when we do look, we don't see God as beautiful. We don't see God as compelling. We don't see Him as interesting. It just it doesn't affect us in the least. And because we do not see beauty and glory in God, we do not feel pleasure or wonder or awe or gratitude to God. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, if this gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so if we're blinded, if we're blinded by Satan, if we're blinded by sin, then how, how, how then can we become true worshipers? How can it happen? Relationships, blood relationships are no help to us. The will of the flesh is no help to us. The will of man is no help to us. In order to become true worshipers, we need a new nature. We need a new mind. We need new affections. We need new eyes. We must be born again. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, what we really need is for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. We need this God who did that to say to our hearts and to shine on our hearts and to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to us. It is a treasure. It is a gift. Listen, friends. Worship 
true worship? True worship happens when we see the glory of God in Christ. When you see it, when the light goes on, worship happens. Always happens. When the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the saving work of God in Christ and we behold glory and we taste glory, we become worshipers. You can't help that then because you've seen. And so, loved ones, if you're not a true worshiper, I I exhort you, I encourage you, trust God's power to make you into a true worshiper. Trust His power to do it. Turn to Him to do it. Call on Him to do it. If you sense, I am utterly powerless. I'm powerless to even turn. I'm powerless to even ask. I'm powerless to even trust. Then call on the the name of the Lord for the ability to turn. For the ability to trust. For the eyes of your heart and soul to be open to see His glory. And you will be saved. That's His promise. And perhaps you are a true worshiper. If you are a true worshiper, do you see what a miracle it is? Give thanks to God and revel in the wonder of this mercy. It is astonishing. It is a priceless treasure which from God. It is a priceless treasure of His Sovereign saving grace that has made you such. You see that you did not bring anything to this process. You you didn't put those desires or longings into your heart. You see what a miracle it is to have a heart of worship and to behold the glory of God. Jesus died on the cross to give you that gift. He died that you might see. And so thank Him and marvel at it and praise Him for it. And if you're a true worshiper, one more thing. If you are a true worshiper, then honor this priceless, precious gift of God by growing as a true worshiper. May your heart be enlarged. You know, just weed out the things Be intentional and self-conscious about weeding out these things that that diminish, that hinder, that choke out a worshiping heart. You know what they are. So let's praise Him. Let's praise Him with heartfelt desire as we focus our attention on who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be to us even today through His Word.